Jeff, it is Thursday, the 17th of February, and this, our intro, people may have seen it before. It's been in the news for the last week or so, and, uh, you know, there was, it involves ice fishing and prostitution, which are two things that are very commonly go hand in hand, right? That's whenever I hear ice fishing, I think of like, oh man, they're out there catching fish and doing hookers and blow. Right. That's exactly what everybody thinks of. Uh, that's what I think typically too. Yeah. I, when, when I go ice fishing, my first question is where's my pole? Where's my bait? And where's my hooker? If I, I mean, don't have those three things, I don't go ice fishing. It's you have a pole and a hook and the, what the pole is and what the hook is are different. In different yeah, no, situations no, no. I, I didn't here. specify what my pole was or my bait was, but I got to have them both. The hooker also didn't specify. Right. So let your imaginations run amok. So there is uh wait. So this, if you are living under bridge, if you have not seen this, uh, I initially saw this clip. Uh, if you follow, do you know what Charlie Barron's is? I didn't. You sent me the clip and I laughed out loud. I've never heard of this guy. So Charlie Barron, he's like from Wisconsin. He does a lot of like crossover video. He's a comedian, but he does like a lot of Midwestern humor, making fun of people from the Midwest. He is from Wisconsin. And so he's done a bunch of crossover videos with uh, You Betcha. I don't know if you, you know, You Betcha. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, You yeah, Betcha is yeah. from like, I think he's from Michigan or something like that or Ohio. And then uh, they also do some videos with dude dad because that guy originally grew up in South Dakota. So they kind of got this like whole Midwestern, like not necessarily conservative because they don't talk about political stuff, but like more like rural, you know, lifestyle type stuff. So he, so Charlie posts this video and he's like listening to this mayor and the mayor is, I don't know, I guess we'll just link to it in the show notes, but to the TikTok, but the mayor was saying they're talking about legalizing ice fishing in this city and the mayor's like okay so what we have ice fishing and you know it's great then the next year people say well i want an ice shanty to you know put up on the lake while i'm out here fishing and then the next thing after that we're gonna have prostitution and the police are gonna have to get involved and it's like what like you're Last week, we had some people push back last week when we were talking about Gary Croton and, you know, how really it was, you know, things, the PR was an excuse because of poor on-field performance and Bronco was there, but then they promoted him. You also brought up today in the Discord that Mike Empey was also the recruiting coordinator and brought in, like he was the primary recruiter for all four of the players that had legal issues and he got hired back later. Right. So it wasn't, you're saying that. So, but then people were like, no, that's ridiculous. And saying you made some drastic logical jump, but compared to ice fishing will lead to prostitution in a matter of months. This is your leap was not so. Uh... No, I, I think I actually have lines with my leap, right? Like, I don't think it was a crazy leap and, and I don't want to, you know, talk a ton about Gary. It was 20 years ago, but it's also February folks. So like chill out, but Gary Croton here, here's my whole point in saying all of this Garrett. And I think you agree. All I'm saying, I, I'm not defending him saying he should have been fired, should have not been fired. Really what I said was that those 03 and 04 teams were more talented than, than people realize that well, they I played mean, brutal schedules when you got the, they were really young teams. So when you had the 06 through 09 run, yeah, it was where did those, those players come from? Right. I mean, those teams were good. And I made some comparisons to like uh, Croton's first three or four years, really similar to Kalani's first three years that, inherited a team that had great seniors, right? Doman and Staley were great. Taysom and Jamal were great. Uh, and they were able to do great things their first year. But after that, like, it was a pretty bare cupboard. And we've talked a lot about how, how Bronco really left the cupboard pretty bare outside of that senior class that, that really was the foundation of that team. There wasn't much there. Like 2017, maybe, maybe Bronco doesn't go four and nine, but a rough 2017 was in store for no matter who the head coach was. Right. And a rough 2002 was in store no matter who the head coach was. Right. Anyway, but my, my point with Croton was that I don't think it was the off the field stuff that got him fired. Right. I, I think it was fan attendance. We talked about this last week, fan attendance at the game, the last couple of games 
uh, in 2004 was was right hovering around 50,000 people. Like that was a big deal. That was when BYU was consistently pumping out sellout crowds to get down to 50,000 people. That that's pretty bleak. Donations down, ticket sales are down. TV money wasn't there at the time. You you've got to have those ticket sales. I think that was the biggest primary factor is that fans were losing interest and your hated rival 40 miles to the north had just gone to a BCS bowl. Like they were on the national landscape as much as any Mountain West program had ever been. And that was a that was unfamiliar territory for a BYU team. So I think that they they said, hey, Croton's not going to be our guy. We want to get rid of him. I think that, you know, there were the gang rape allegations that came up, the charges, they weren't allegations, they were charges that I think ultimately they were dropped, but whatever, that doesn't matter. That was what allowed BYU to, to fire with cause. You know, that was what prevented a buyout. Also, I do think that there is an element that, that should be sta- stated that maybe they thought they could get Kyle Whittingham and they wanted Whittingham more than Gary Croton. So, hey, let's hurry up and figure out a way to get rid of Croton so that we can get Wit. Because we all remember, well, they thought they had Wit in the bag, and then there was a scramble after Wit didn't pan out, right? So I think there might have been an element of that. No way am I defending Gary Croton. No way am I defending the, these gang rape charges or anything like that. All I am simply saying is BYU has had things, not gang rape on campus, but like let's the context matters. These were brand new, true freshman recruits. This happened on August 9th. School hadn't even started yet. Like that was when the event took place. School hadn't even started. The, this, this wasn't BYU's fault. This was, these kids sucked. These kids did an awful, terrible, horrible thing, right? And when like Charles West, granted it wasn't on BYU's campus, but he was a BYU signee. He was a, he was lauded about nationally because he was going to be good. Like BYU coaches raved about him. Everybody knew who Charles West was. And then when he held up a hooker at knife point and forced him or forced her to give him oral sex after she said, no, you didn't pay enough for oral sex. Like nobody got fired because of that. It was Charles West. You sicko. They right. cut him, cut him loose. That was the end of it. And I think if, if Gary Croton was winning games or maybe if Witt wasn't available, I think that's what would have happened with, with these gang rape allegations. Not that they weren't any less heinous, but that it wasn't the head coach's fault. It was the fault of these four dumb kids. And if you're going to extend the fault to the coaching staff, well, yeah, I do. I think it would be the defensive coordinator or maybe the position coach, like Bronco coached the secondary. Let's not forget that. Maybe the position coach that brought some of them in. Maybe the recruiting coordinator would be blacklisted from BYU. But none of that happened. Bronco got the job. Mike Empey was welcomed with open arms back at BYU later on. Croton's the only guy who who was blacklisted. And I just feel like that is, he was a scapegoat and that's fine. Like there's gotta be a scapegoat. There's the old saying of everything rolls up to the head man in charge. It's like, yeah, that's true. So that's fine. But what do we know about recruiting? The head coach is very limited in how much interaction they have. And these kids hadn't even started practice yet. Right. Like Croton's interaction with these four guys was so minimal because he was the head coach. They, he didn't recruit them. He maybe had an in-home visit. That was it, right? Like that was all. Uh, anyway, that's all I'm saying is that I think that we have created, we talked about this a few weeks ago too, foundational myths. I think we talked about this on the show that – we have created foundational myths. I saw a TikTok. It was about religion, but like foundational myths of things that we that are part of the foundation of our society, but really aren't like they're universally accepted as fact, but also they're not really fact. The example being like the Revolutionary War. When we talk about the Revolutionary War, like we talk about it as if like the Americans just kicked the British's ass, right? Like we, we took it to them, but in reality, the whole premise of, or the, the, the whole game plan for the Americans was like, Hey, we can't win. Let's just outlast them until it costs so much money. They don't want to fight anymore. Right. We didn't beat anybody. We just didn't die as fast. And so eventually parliament said, Hey, we can't afford this. So stop fighting. But this foundational myth is that, hey, we beat the hell out of the British. 
And that, I, there's lots of foundational myths like that. I think a foundational myth of the BYU football story is that Gary Croton was somehow just like, Everything was running rampantly wild. Everything was nuts. Everything was insane. His teams were dreadfully bad. I don't think that's true. That's all I'm saying. Should he have been fired? Sure, fire him. I don't care. I just don't think that it's fair 20 years later to pin him up as like an enemy of BYU. I that's think, all. yeah, I think that is fair. I really, the really what needs to happen here is that we need to get gary on for an episode so yes i don't know how we make this happen we gotta we can find i mean we can find some people that know gary right and get figure out his contact information somebody's got to have it if you are listening to this and you have gary croton's personal contact information or jim mcmahon's we've been begging him on twitter for like the last month since he started yeah, we, tweeting about crap, we've been saying, Jim, come on the show. We are ready for the tell all. You have your BYU this. degree. Your number's retired. Let's like, this is, we're ready for the tell all episode. Um, so let's, uh, you know, let's, let's get Jimmy Mac on here and let's get Gary on here. So if you are listening to this and you have Gary's phone number, then we would love know. to. We would and love Gary, to. Gary, this is a safe place, man. Like we're, we're Gary Croton fans. We just want to talk about it. We want to, we want to get your side of the story because so, I mean, for 20 years, it's been one side of the story that is told. Right. And you we're talking to like the one side of the story. And, and I think a lot of people have, it's actually, this is a good uh, what's the, <clears throat> litmus test for yeah. how you appreciate Football, because I every pretty much everybody I know that I respect and consider to have good football opinions, that is a BYU fan, will look at 03 and 04 and be like, well, crap, you know, Ingeman got hurt, didn't come back the way he was. You had obviously the legal issues, lost a bunch of players. You played the two toughest schedules at that point in history. You're trying to rebuild. You've got, you know, an underclassman, John. You got like a freshman, John Beck, a freshman who was, get, who was hurt, like who was hurt, like, and he, a freshman he, he was Curtis in and Brown. Out. Yeah, a freshman Curtis Brown. You're starting Lance Pendleton in games at quarterback, right. and Todd right. Mortensen, you know, and all these things. And then you look in that 2004 season; they still went five and six. They were one win away from a bowl game. They lost three games to teams that went a combined 37 and one. Like 37 Boise, and one. Boise State had one loss, and we almost beat them. On the like, blue turf, they, they lost. They lost. Well, yes. Yeah, so Matt Payne hits that field goal with time expiring. They it's, it's thirty seven and two. two. It's yeah, it's thirty six and two. And BYU is going bowling. That UNLV game in two thousand four is the game that everybody cites is like, well, you should be fired because of that. Like, yes, no excusing the UNLV game. That was a bad loss. UNLV was like two and nine or something that year. They were they were a crappy team. Is that really any different than like UMass in two thousand seven? No. Okay, Even so like, let's like Toledo in 2019. Let's look at that game. Okay. Even in that game, I have this box score up right now. I'm okay. ready. John Beck, 34 of 67, which is not ideal, but not great. 358 yards, one touchdown, one interception. Not that bad. Curtis Brown was had eight carries, 102 yards with a 40 yard long run. Fahu Tahi, 12 carries for 11 yards. What the hell, man? Like, dude, <laughs> Tahi, you weigh 270 billion pounds. How do you get less than one yard a carry on a dozen <laughs> carries? With a, it took 12 carries, 11 yards, a long of nine. How, I, that is the weirdest stat line I've ever seen from I'm a 200. I'm trying to wrap, wrap my head around that. Right. And then Beck, he got destroyed. He had eight carries for negative 22 yards. So there were a bunch of sacks there. I mean, Watkins had nine catches for 117. Collie had 10 for 70. Uh, you know, we got stuff in there. Flip side, UNLV, their quarterback, Kurt Nantkiss. I don't even understand that. Nine for 27, a, a buck 30, one TD, one interception. What an ugly and then game. Dom, and then the running back, that two running backs, Dominic Dorsey, 26 carries, 94 yards. Deontay Perkins, 13 carries, 44 yards. So, like, we outplayed them, but just had you know like some sometimes you lose when you were the better team and, and look that's a weird thing and that should Payne, Matt should Payne, be why you have won of course they should have but like 
those games happen, right? Like remembering that one game, like Lavelle Edwards lost to UTEP. Let's not forget that, right? Like uh, Kalani Satake lost to Toledo, lost to UMass. Bronco Mendenhall, like we all know the games that he, like San Jose State, like he dropped games he shouldn't have dropped to. Like that happens. But every other loss in that, that 2004 season, Stanford was not a very good team. BYU lost to Stanford, but people don't remember. John Beck got hurt against Notre Dame. Matt Berry got hurt. And it was Jason Beck who came in and played against Stanford. So you're starting your third string quarterback in an already extraordinarily young quarterback room. And you're playing a Pac-10 team. Yeah, a loss is understandable. They lost to Utah, who went undefeated. They lost to USC, who was maybe the best college football team we've ever seen. And they lost to Boise State, who went 12-1. and And then they lost to a Rocky Long New Mexico team. Like, this isn't the New Mexico team of 2022. This was 2004, New Mexico. They went bowling that year. This is like, I don't have it pulled up, but I I think Dontrell Moore was on that team. They ran that crazy. They were like the first team that ran that weird jet sweep action. And it was like crazy. It was exotic. And they were a pretty damn good team. It's even then it was lost by a touchdown. Yeah, they were they were seven and five. They went. So let's see. They're five lost. They were seven and five and they had lost two games in conference. So they lost to that New Mexico team. They lost to Wazoo 21 to uh, 17. They, they beat Texas tech at home. They lost to Oregon state 17 to seven. That Oregon state team finished seven and five. That was a different beat New Mexico state, state yep. lost to Utah, lost to air force by five. And then rattled off one, two, three, three, four, five straight wins to close out the season and then lost to Navy in their bowl game, uh, 34 to 19. And that yeah, Navy like, team, that Navy team finished 10 and two and ranked in the final AP poll. That, so, I mean, so their total, their losses, four to Washington state, 10 to Oregon state. And let's see, obviously Utah and then five to air force. I mean, it was like, they had three losses by a total of, you know, 17 points, points, 17, 17 points. Yeah. So they were easily could have ended up an eight, nine, one team, which is how most things go, right? Like you usually, you do not end up a 10 win team. Like I don't know, obviously like there's no such thing as like really good 10 win teams. Like if you're really good, you're winning 11, 12 or going undefeated, you know, 13 games close to running the table. A 10 win team and an eight win team are usually about the same, but it's just really like, close. You have a couple plays that break your way. Well, it's like, look at, look at BYU this year. Like BYU finished 10 and three. Um, does anybody feel honestly with this defense that was in place? Does anybody feel like this is one of the top? Uh, I mean, what, how many times has BYU won 10 games, six, seven times? Does anybody feel like this is truly one of the most talented six or seven teams in BYU football history? No, I, I don't think so. They lost no. to UAB for crying out loud. Yeah, and it's yeah, you lose to UAB. You have which I, I mean that falls into that same kind of category of loss, right? But it's like you know the Arizona State game that was close. If Utah had gone another quarter with how the run defense was going, if the offensive line, if honestly, if Jaron Hall had not stepped out of bounds and scored that touchdown, it may have left Utah enough time to score twice. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) And, you know, there's... um, If Tyler Algier doesn't punch out a fumble, Arizona State, that's a loss. Right. The the USF game, that goes another, like, you know, that was also a one-score game. You know, there are a lot of close games that went our way versus the flip side in 2019. You know, when we said, oh, there's a big step back and it was such a disappointment. All the it was kind of the same team, just that the close games flipped the other way, right? Like when you look at 20, I mean, we still had those close games because you know, obviously Tennessee was one of those games. Because football is close, yeah, USC like that's the way it works. So I mean, USC obviously went to overtime, Tennessee went, but it's like Washington, we got some K okay, Toledo, close game didn't go our way. South Florida, close game didn't go our way. Rattle off a bunch. San Diego State, still a close game. Hawaii, still 34-38. So out, other than getting our asses whooped by Utah and Washington. The other one, two, three, four losses were by a total of 25 points. So 
that's you know six points a game it's you're looking at one possession game on average yeah, you know that's that's a lot of close games and so you flip those around and it's you know and we also i mean we had the tennessee game we had the washington game we had the boise game which all uh, one possession it, games that we won and, and we so, all recognize this like in 2016 like everybody talks about oh byu was nine and four was like a touchdown away seven points away from being undefeated in 2016 that's football because they were also like 10 points away from being like four and nine in 2016. I mean, the Toledo game, it was like potentially looking at a five game losing streak. Right. I mean, so football, that's football. So all of this is to say Gary Croton is not the enemy. Like let's not, let's not rewrite history that Gary Croton was this awful human being that was just dreadful for BYU. Should he have been fired? I mean, I think we would have been calling for him to be fired after three consecutive losing seasons, no matter how tough the schedule was. I fine, totally fine to be fired. The off the field stuff was not Gary Croton's fault. Like anybody who says that is just flat out wrong. It wasn't. It was four stupid kids who made a horrifically terrible decision. That's whose fault it was, right? It wasn't Guy Holiday's fault that Charles West was, was psycho. Like that was Charles West. He chose to do that. Guy holiday was a football coach and guy holiday didn't get fired when Charles West held up a hooker. Neither did, uh, did Bronco Mendenhall. Neither did Robert and I like none of those guys did when, when Charles West was in a, it was a national story. He was a different media element, like a different media era in 2000. Uh, what was that? 2014 when Charles West signed compared to, 2004 but i would have got fired because no that's not the coach's fault the coach is like yeah you wish you uncover that in due diligence but stuff happens when francis bernard is caught on video threatening a police officer like that's a dumb kid doing a dumb thing that isn't wow bronco what the hell man what a stupid thing you did. Now you can't just let that, like you can't not address those things, but that's what made Bronco great for BYU, right? Is when, when things happened, Bronco addressed them appropriately and quickly. Those four kids were dismissed from the football team immediately after everybody learned immediately. I just want to make sure that Gary Croton is not the enemy. Good coach, bad coach. That's for not the discussion of the day. But he's not the enemy. He's not like somehow the the villain, the Harvey Dent of BYU football. Yeah, it, that's it. That's all I'm saying. He and I definitely agree. And I've said for a long time, you know, that it's I don't think 2005, 2006 are any different. And actually, I think that honestly, I think 2005 is probably a better team and 2006 is about the same because there were growing pains with having a young staff and a first time play caller in Robert and I in 2005. Right. And so, and another, that was another season where, you know, things were needing to change and they had growing pains. And so I don't, um, I don't think there's a, I don't think it is extremely unreasonable. How did we end up here starting with talking about hookers and ice fishing? What well, the, we what did. A, and so we I also don't have, it, I don't think it's unreasonable. And I think anyone who is like truly adamant of, you know, things were going to get shut down. I don't, I mean, obviously we were not around. We did not know the people we know today. And there may be people who are more closely connected to the program where it's like, oh, it's going to shut down. But then again, it's like, if you look in that era, um, like that's my biggest thing. Like, I I don't buy that. Like, I know that that's a narrative, but if you're that close, if you're so upset at what has happened in your football program, one, you're cleaning house, right? Right. Like you're totally cleaning house, Bronco Mendenhall, everybody, everybody's gone. You're starting from scratch. If you, if the option is to pull the plug on the program or not pull the plug on the program, you're certainly not saying, okay, well, we'll keep the program in, but we're going to hire the guys who were involved. Like, no, you're not going to do that. Of course not. So I, I think that is BYU fan folklore. That I BYU think- almost shut the program down. I think it is folklore, and I also think it stems from the fact that this was in 2004, and in 2000, 2000 or 2001, 
it was announced that Ricks would become BYU Idaho and they were dropping sports. Yes. I think so. I think writing. So it was just like, well, they decided to get rid of it there. So, you know, we're going to get rid of it here. You know, like we decided to get rid of it here. So it's like, they're going to shut it down. It's like, they were not going to shut it down. No, they were, it was never going to be like, if it was multiple things, if there was something like, you know, extremely like if it was art briles like if it was football sponsored gang rape that's totally different if it was gary croton covering up a gang rape maybe that's you know that's a different story too this was four dumb kids who made a stupid decision they weren't going to close the program down because of that it was never that close and if it was what the hell are they hiring the coaches who were involved to be the head coach and the leader who was retained was anyone else who was retained on that staff I think most of the defensive staff was. I don't remember, and we've spent way too much time talking about this. But. I, uh, I'm gonna see if I can find the list of. Um, did, no, that doesn't have it. I'm trying to find. Oh, here we go. Does this have coaches? No, that doesn't have coaches. Um, All I'm saying is that I, I, I think there were other elements, right, that that led to the dismissal, and we have kind of rewritten a foundational myth that Gary Croton was just horrifically awful, and I just don't think that's true. I don't think that's fair, and I don't think that, and we, you know, we we kind of see, and and Garrett, I think you and I are sort of part of it, but like we've kind of done the same thing with Bronco Mendenhall. Like there are people that we have created this element that Bronco Mendenhall is either a was the savior of the program, which, okay, he did a lot of good things to bring BYU out of where they were. But as we've talked about, like he was given a a really, really, really well-stocked tool chest in order to do it, right? Credit, all the credit to Bronco for making it happen. But let's not discredit what happened before. It wasn't like Bronco was handed, you know, Marshall's program after the plane crash and he had to rebuild from nothing. Right. He, He was handed a program that was on the brink of being really, really good. And, and he was the guy who got him there. But the, so you either believe that Bronco is the savior of the world or, and I think this is probably where we would, you know, have played a role that Bronco had capped out lazy, weird, too weird. We've kind of rewritten what it was. Like if Bronco would have never left BYU, uh, I still think BYU gets to the big 12. I still think BYU is in a very similar position of, of where they are today. Like BYU is bigger than any of these coaches. And anyway, at the end of the day, all we're trying to say, Gary Croton, we're, we're going to get you on the show. We want to hear your side. Uh, Garrett, we have basketball program written on our agenda, and, and there's nothing else. It's just basketball program. And when we were running through our agenda, which is really an unscientific process that typically we do three minutes before we hop on to, to record, I said basketball program. And you said, what do you want to talk about? I don't know. They suck. I hate it. And that was pretty well all I wanted to say. Do you have anything you want to add? Mm, no it really i think at this point uh we gotta it's gonna take some help because there have obviously there have been a couple upsets so we're shooting unless the wcc ends up being a four bid league which is very very unlikely but crazier things have happened probably gonna have to win the conference tournament to go i think the only way outside of a conference championship in the tournament BYU has to win out the regular season and then they have to go to the conference championship if they can beat St. Mary's do they pay is that today I don't know when they play St. Mary's yep, they, or Saturday yeah Saturday gotta beat St. Mary's that's still a quality win and then they gotta finish take care of business the rest of the way and then they have to get to the championship game which guarantees them at least a win over you know one have- of St. Mary's or San Francisco. And then you get that chance for that coveted quality loss against Gonzaga. Right. Well, you'll either have to, the way it'll probably shake out is you'll end up needing to also beat Santa Clara again, who's also yeah. a top 100 Ken Palm team. So yeah. it is the path is there, but it's like, they have to get at least, I think they have to run through the conference championship and get some help. And I will be firmly on the bubble. Probably one of the first few teams out but really they got to knock off, get the Zags in Vegas. Uh, yeah. So it's going to be tough. It's going to be really, really tough. What I'm really curious about is how, how does the, how does the, 
the love affair with Mark Pope change? Like Mark Pope has been the guy. And I still think Mark Pope is the guy. Nobody doesn't think he's the guy. But the the average fan, what changes? I mean, is he still the guy? Or do does do the boo birds start to come out a little bit? Any boo bird who comes out right now is ridiculously stupid, right? Like there's not if you look at the objectively bad losses, there is only there's really only one bad loss, and that is specific. Okay, let's look at the other losses and where they're currently. Okay, UVU, we've spent a lot of time digging into schedules, but right, UVU happened in overtime. Like, yeah, I get it, that sucks, but UVU is also ranked number one twelve in Ken Palm right now. Like, that's not a terrible loss. That is on the road. Yeah, it's and then Creighton seventy one in Ken Palm, Vanderbilt seventy six in Ken Palm. Obviously, Gonzaga's number one overall in both, like both games there. Santa Clara, 75, San Francisco, 25, and then Pacific, 267. It's like we are flirting. Even it is not crazy for to say that UVU could end up winning the WAC championship. And if they do that, then they're, if they win the WAC championship, then they could easily end up being to where you're looking at Pacific and then every other single loss this season would be to a top 100 team. Hey, well, you've got it pulled up. Is UVU the second best basketball program in Ken Palm right now in the state of Utah? Um, they are because Utah's one twenty-two, and UVU is one twelve. Oh, Utah I, State. Utah State is. Oh no, sorry, lad. Utah State is fifty-two, and BYU ah. and BYU is fifty-three right now. We've slid all the way down. It's not. It's, you know, we uh, peaked at we peaked at twenty-two earlier in the season. And then oh, when you have gone, actually, so yeah, and we were hovering in the top 25. So we were 23 when we played Santa Clara, tw- stayed at 23 after that loss because there's only one point loss on the road. So that's, you know, tough game. And then went from 23 to 28 at Pacific, 28 to 36 after San Francisco, 36 to 46 after Gonzaga. And then now we're at 48 and then drop from 48 to 53 after Pepperdine. So we knock off St. Mary's, who's 21. We'll start jumping back up, but that's going to take a lot of, a lot of help there. A lot of help. Uh, this was, you know, for only having basketball program on the agenda. We've, we've done pretty good at talk of basketball. Uh, I, you know, after doing this for almost two years now, we're saying that almost two years. That is weird. Yeah. It is, uh, you know, it, we are firmly in the, I, I will endorse you on LinkedIn for being able to talk out your ass for an extent. Oh, come on. Because I do the same thing. That is like 90% of what we do here. This was educated. Uh, I want to talk about the big 12 and we actually have a question in our mailbag from your guy stats of war about what BYU needs to do to, to adjust to the big 12. That's great. We're going to talk about that. Uh, before we get into that, I want to talk about what I think is a signal that the Big 12 is going to be in great, great hands moving forward and in a great, great position. This year, okay, the Big 12, it was the craziest coaching carousel that we've ever seen. Like, think of the big-name jobs that were open, right? Like Oregon and LSU and, uh, you know, everybody. There were a million. And the Big 12 had a lot of coaches who were – targets for a lot of most of and definitely some of these jobs the big 12 managed to hold on to matt campbell at iowa state luke fickle the new big 12 luke fickle at cincinnati who just signed a a, a mega extension dave aranda at baylor stayed at baylor that's a huge win i don't think people realize how big that is kalani satake we, we we stressed we had the drama stayed home Dana Holgerson wasn't like the primary candidate uh, in any of the big name jobs, but that's a proven coach who can win and had uh, Houston back in the top 25 this year. He's still at Houston and Gus bus, former national champion Malzahn is still at UCF and UCF wasn't great, but they weren't they had a bad ton team. of injuries. Yeah, they were. Decimated. I mean, they're starting a true freshman at quarterback after um, what's his face got hurt. I love TCU's hire of Sonny Dykes. 
I love Texas Tech's hire of uh, Joey McGuire. The Big 12 kept its main coaches, and then his name is slipping. What's his name? Klein at Kansas oh, State. Yep. Chris Klein. That, that he's done great things at Kansas State. The Big 12 kept all of those coaches, and Mike Gundy, obviously. Like, I, I don't think there was ever any question of whether he was going to leave. Chris Klein. But Mike he's still Gundy. there. Uh, who else did we? I'm typing all these out. So we, we're one. And then Joey McGuire. Two, three, four, five. There's two more coaches. Joey McGuire. Oh, so also Lance Leipold, like at Kansas. That's That's actually a very good hire. So Leipold was at Buffalo for the Kansas from like 2000. Kansas beat Texas. So uh, he Leipold was a former. He spent a lot of time in like the D3 ranks, and so he was the head coach from 2007 to 2014 at Wisconsin Whitewater, where. He went, let's see, his record in how many seasons is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. His record in eight seasons at a D3 school was 109 and six. He went 53 and three <laughs> in conference play. And he finished, um, they won one, two, three, four, five, six D3 championships, lost in the national championship game once, and then had a disappointing 2012 where they went seven and three and missed the playoffs. Like, so his three conference losses, uh, he went six and one his second year and then five and two into one that year when they went seven and three, every other game, they ran the table. So the seasons 14 and one, 13 and two, 15 and 0, 15 and 0, 15 and 0, 17 and three, 15 and 0, 15 and 0. And then Buffalo's like, okay, we are Buffalo. We're in the Mac. Who cares about this? Whatever. And then he goes to Buffalo and they have. I mean, Buffalo was not good. He goes five and seven, two and 10, six and six, and then comes back and goes 10 and four and wins the Mac um, or goes to the title game. Eight and five, second in their division, wins the Bahamas Bowl. And then the shortened COVID season, they go six and one and win their bowl game and finish number 25. And, and it can't and it goes to one, two games, which That's is pretty damn good for Kansas. Which is good. And one of them was Texas. And he had Kansas competitive. They lost by a field goal to TCU. It was one score with West Virginia. We'll see what happens with, with, with Lance Leipold in Kansas, in Kansas. Neil Brown at West Virginia, if he doesn't turn things around this year, he's probably gone. Yeah, but, his seat is getting hot. But even but those, though that was an understandable and a very good hire, like Morgantown, West Virginia is kind of like Troy, Alabama in a lot of ways, right? Like it, the other 10 coaches, though, are like proven. Good. Yeah. I guess Joey McGuire, like we'll see. I like him a lot because I think he's, he's, he's incredibly smart. I think he would have been, I think Texas tech was smart to wrap him up early in the cycle because I think he would have been a hot name after all those big jobs started to open up. The big 12 managed to keep all those coaches. Most of them are getting raises. Most of them are getting extensions. Uh, the big 12 is going to be a damn good football conference. And I, we've talked about it a ton, but the fact that all of those coaches, all of those coaches and who many of them had options to leave, chose to stick it out in the Big 12, tells me that as much as a head coach can be, they're at least committed to making the Big 12 a damn good football conference. It's going to be fun as hell going forward to watch these guys. It's going to be fun as hell. And I'll tell you why I think some of them stayed is because there's a large vacuum now with Oklahoma leaving. Not with Texas leaving because Texas hasn't done anything in the conference in a decade with Oklahoma leaving and and that's I mean that's why look at Lincoln Riley he was like I want to go where I can be the top dog in a like I want to be the big fish in the small pond with a clear path to the playoff he knew that didn't exist in the SEC in Norman so he skedaddled on over to Los Angeles where USC's budget dwarfs everybody else in the league their resources their ability to recruit like even USC is terrible and Clay Hilton was so pedestrian and mediocre, and they were still falling ass first into Rose Bowls and top 15 classes, right? And now you look at this, and I think Luke Fickle thinks, okay, well, there's a ton of talent in Ohio, right? Like Ohio high school football is right. It's not Florida or Texas, but it's right behind it and very close. And right now in there, it's like you have Penn State reaching into Ohio. You have Michigan and Michigan State reaching in Ohio. Uh, Stoops at Kentucky has done a, re- he's re- gone up into Ohio, like going, you know, going across the, the border and going from Kentucky. And now with Cincinnati there, you have 
well, and I guess Louisville there also right near the, you know, Louisville and Cincinnati are only an hour apart from each other. Um, right there. It's like now since you have fickle there, who is an Ohio guy who's like, Hey, we just went to the playoff as a G five team. We are a P five team in Ohio. It's not just Ohio state anymore. There's another team in Ohio where you can get on the field and you will have a chance to go to the playoff. Like, yes, obviously understand like they're going to lose guys to Ohio state. They're not going to like Ohio state's still going to be Ohio state, but I think you're going to see a lot fewer kids from the Cincinnati area going to state college, Pennsylvania, you know, and going down to Kentucky and these schools that have been getting a lot of talent there because you have a local thing. And now, and same with Dave Aranda, I mean, with Oklahoma leaving Mike Gundy's looking his chops, Dave Aranda's looking his chops, Matt Campbell, I don't know what Matt Campbell's thinking because Iowa State has never been good until Matt Campbell took over, right? And it's like, then you have Sam Malzahn. He also has an easier path. I mean, Holgerson does actually has a path now. So it's like, there is this void, especially, and I think for Cincinnati, Oklahoma State, and Baylor to really look around and say, hey, we're already kind of on top. We're doing well. We can start, we just need one or two more kids a year that we're missing out on before, but we can sell a path to the playoff better than some of these SEC school can. And it's, you know, it's going to be tough for, you know, if Texas starts missing a couple bowl games and Texas becomes an Ole Miss type program where, yeah, they go win 10 games every five or six years, but for the most part, they're going eight and five. They keep doing that. Texas is going to turn into Nebraska mm-hmm. and it's going to be a lot harder to keep the Texas image. And so I think those three schools specifically are going to are prime to like take that leap. And I think that's why the coaches stayed because they say, Hey, I can get paid plenty here and I can be a hero here. And my, I have a clear path to a national championship here. I agree. I agree. And I think, I I think it's a big, great sign for the future. Now dipping into our mailbag, we got a couple of questions here. The one from, from your guy, Parker stats of war. I'd love to hear a conversation about what needs to change long-term recruiting wise for BYU to dominate the big 12. We talk about this a lot. Uh, and, and I'm glad that there's some non BYU fans. We need, a, fans we need to get Parker. We need to get Parker on here. Yeah, I, I think we do. And, and that's another thing I'm just excited about to have a conference because you're invested in the you know the success or the failures of your conference, right? And I, I'm excited to follow those other teams that are part of like we're all part of one conglomerate unit again. That'll feel great. Um, what needs to change? A lot. I mean, a lot needs to change. With Offering BYU's football players lives. instead of basketball players to play defense. It, it, BYU has to get out of the project game as much as they have been, right? I mean, there's always – BYU is never going to be a top 20 recruiting school, ever. It's never going to happen. They are going to be a school that needs to capitalize on the big-name recruits who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, and in seemingly every class, there are guys who, who are there, right? There are big names who are members of the church. In this year, uh, I think he's the fifth or sixth-rated overall recruit, Nicholas uh, Yamaleava, the quarterback out of California. He's LDS. He's a bona fide consensus five-star guy who's probably going to go to one of the National Blue Bloods that's the kind of guy that BYU needs to get. Jackson Dart, that's the kind of guy that BYU needs to get in order to be, as Parker phrased it, to dominate the Big 12. If BYU is ever going to dominate the Big 12, they have to start landing those types of guys, the Siaki Ika types of guys. In order for BYU to be consistently competitive and have you know have some blips on the radar, kind of like how Utah has done in the, in the Pac-12, they have to get out of the developmental world. There's always going to be an element of developmental guys in BYU's recruiting classes, always, forever. That's not going to change, and it shouldn't change. BYU has made their or built their entire reputation on, on guys who kind of fell through the cracks. So they, they, they can't totally forsake that, right? But they have to whittle those numbers down. They have to start saying, okay, we can't have 8 to 12 uh, developmental guys in a recruiting class. We've, we've got to have five, four, and we're going to replace those other seven guys with maybe they don't have as high a ceiling, you know, but they have a much higher floor. Those, those mid three-star type dudes that you hope pan out. You're still going to, you know, try to develop them as much as you can, but at minimum you're, you know, you hope you're getting a consistent role player and not just a guy who's clearly not going to be a football player and never, never makes it on the field. 
Uh, like we've said a hundred thousand times, I feel like I don't have any issue with any of the individual players that were brought in, in, in BYU's most recent recruiting class. The issue comes with the number of guys who are developmental prospects. That's tough. That's, that's really, really tough. Uh, because if they're boomer bust, there's not a lot of middle ground. Right. And if they bust, then you just lost a lot of, of that high floor, find a guy who could play on, uh, on, on special teams. So to me, that's the biggest long-term recruiting change. You got to hope that you could steal away some of those, those big name dudes who happen to be members of the church. If you're going to dominate, you have to, especially at the quarterback position. But if you're not going to dominate, if you're just going to be competitive, right, you're going to maybe have a chance to win it, you know, once a decade. If you're going to look a lot like maybe like a program like TCU has over the, their course in the Big 12, they, they've got to start getting more three stars and, and fewer developmental guys. Definitely. Um, there's next question that we got deeper. This is from Blair Red. Two, well, he gave us two questions. Deeper position group heading into the season, O-line or wide receivers? I think it has to be O-line. Kingsley, I mean, you have Kingsley versus Puka, but then still losing Neil Powell, you need guys to step up. Like the O-line, You, the only person you are losing is Empey, who was hurt for more than half the season, versus you know losing Neil Powell, who was a big piece. Isaac, if we lump Isaac Rex in with pass catchers, right, he's going to be hurt and he's going to be slow coming back. So as we need, there's more guys that need to step up in the receiver room, but the O-line is, we're talking about moving good starters around to make room for better players that we brought in. Yeah, I agree. And at the wide receiver spot, it's really Puka Nakua and Gunnar Romney, and then a bunch of guys you hope take a step. So to me, I actually don't, I, I think the wide receiver group, will show that they're deep but here in february i don't think they are deep i think they have two really really good headliners and then a lot of guys who need to have a good spring but the offensive line like there's seven guys you can plug into any of those positions and feel like your production's not going to drop i think it might be more than seven this year yeah it could be (laughs) by the time by the time the season rolls around i think it will be I think right now I can, you, you could say here, mix and match in any combination, these seven, eight names, and you're feeling pretty good about how yeah. your offensive line's going to look. Uh, the next question Blair had was bigger worry, the safety position or the defensive line. My answer is simple. It's the safety position. I think the defensive line has way more talent than they've shown. There were a lot of injuries last year. I think we, we kind of forget that. Uh, I, I think the defensive lines issues are, are, are more schematic than they are talent-based. Yeah, I, well, I think it's both, but I, and I said this a few weeks ago, I think the defensive line, the talent issues are forcing, in some of his scheme of like forcing so much onto the linebackers, but the defensive line, the talent issues make it hard to judge the schematic issues because those are a lot like they're tied together, right? Like, are you asking people to do something they can't, you know, what are they actually ask? Like, you know, and so is it, are they struggling to do what there is being asked of them versus why are you, if you know, they can't do that, why are you not asking them to do something different? Like it's a lot of chicken and egg there. Um, and so I don't know what the percentage is, but I know that the, just I, my personal opinion, the overall, the recruiting has been so poor on the defensive line. And there are so many projects there that you're banking all take a step. And it's so young that it's, I can't even give an opinion on the scheme because we're trotting out multi, like there's times when there's four walk-ons with their hands in the dirt. Um, Brooks Miley looks like a Ninja Turtle. Brooks Miley and Ice Moa come walking through the door will help immensely. But that's, again, that's the problem is when your most talented guys in the room are a true freshman and a kid getting back from his mission, that's concerning that they are walking in and instantly two of your four most talented offensive linemen are guys who just got there. I don't even know if Brooks Miley looks like a Ninja Turtle. Brooks Miley looks like the, in, in, in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, the secret of the ooze, they took those baby animals, Shredder did, and his posse, and they gave them whatever bionic ooze it was to make them mutants. That is what Brooks Miley is looking like. I think it was a dog, and I can't remember the other one, but 
that's what Brooks Miley looks like. He's huge. He looks like he could pick up an offensive line. Just the whole thing, collect like, wrap it, it all in his arms and pick it up. He he is looking and he is one of the he I'm very excited to see what he does. But it really it just we get in these issues and it, we kind of have the same issue with Troy Hines, right? And now it's like we're putting this all on Brooks Miley and Ice Moa, and we've seen it the last two years with Tyler Batty. It's like, oh man, we can be good if this guy just takes that next step, but injuries happen. And so when you only have Tyler Batty, Ice Moa, and Brooks Miley, and one or two of them get hurt. Now, what do you have? Yeah. And that's the situation we're saying. It's like, there's not multiple guys. And it's like, like those three will never have to battle anybody for playing time because they are head and shoulders, just more talented than everybody else in the room. So what happens when that is, you know, the step back that they are taking as soon as one of them gets hurt. I get it. I get it. I think, uh, I think I could make the same argument for safeties. But I, I think that's a good question. I think those are the two biggest worries on the team, quite frankly, safety and defensive line. Uh, I have a rant. We have an interview with, with Hunter Clank here that we're going to cap off the show with. Really great interview. Uh, this is a long show because of that. We recorded as I think, and we kind of lost track of time a little bit. Uh, but with that interview, thank you all for listening to an extended edition of Give Him Hell, Bring Him. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to put this out. We'll talk about it here. So maybe hit pause. I'll put it out as a separate bonus episode. You know, Ooh, there people, you go. In case people want to do the rapid fire. Yeah, of, good call. Of listening to that. So, but yeah, let's talk about the interview. Uh, I, yeah, great interview. Hunter Clegg. I have a rant I want to end the show with. I don't have a rant about Hunter Clegg, but I have a rant that I need to talk about that relates to recruiting. Hunter Clegg, though, Hunter Clegg is a a four-star defensive end out of American Fork. Scott offers, you heard, you'll, you'll hear him in the interview. He talks a lot about some of the schools, like most of the Pac-12 is offered. The ones who haven't offered are the ones who probably just realize they don't have a chance at this point, like a Colorado or something like that. Uh, he's starting to hear from Michigan, Texas, Michigan State, some of the bigger name programs uh, east of the Pac-12 and the Intermountain West. So he's starting to blow up. He, he's as good as anybody. The one thing I loved, about Hunter's interview. Hunter is taking his time through this process. He is more thorough than maybe any recruit I've ever talked to. You heard him talk, you'll hear him talk about it on the on the interview that just I think he said last week, maybe earlier this week, he went to BYU's campus on his own accord to meet with some business professor to discuss the football specific opportunities that football players had within the BYU business program. Like that's the level of due diligence that he is doing in every aspect of, of, of these schools that are, are courting him. He's talking with alumni. He's talking with uh, professors. He's talking with players. He's talking with just friends who attend both schools. And you can tell that he is really, really deliberate and thoughtful with the way that he is handling uh, this recruiting process. That's not to say that other kids aren't deliberate and thoughtful, but I think that Hunter Clegg is being more deliberate and thoughtful. And, and because of that, I think that whatever decision he ultimately reaches, I think he's going to be happier than the average kid. Like in this transfer portal era of college football, uh, I think Hunter Clegg is committing to a school and he's committing to his future because of that school and football is part of it where so many other kids, they commit to a coach, they commit to very one, you know, specific thing and when that thing doesn't pan out or that coach leaves, then their entire plan is thrown awry and they have to, you know, hit the portal and, and change plans. Hunter is, is much more deliberate with that process. And that's yeah. cool. And that is cool. And it's, that is kind of, that's the kind of kid that when they set foot on campus will be 100% bought into everything that BYU is. And they're, you know, looking at that big picture. Yeah, so you're not going to want to miss that interview. It's a really great interview. Um, you know, it's, it's short, 20, 25 minutes long. I guess it's not that short, but it was fun. We have a good time. So check that out in a bonus episode. Wrapping up this show, I have one quick rant, Garrett. If you are a high school coach, and it, it's now time, coaches are able to get out and start visiting campuses this spring. Coaches are also able to do things like BYU is having their coaches clinic. Like schools are able to do that again. 
if you're a high school coach and you are like miffed that you haven't seen a specific school, whether it be BYU or Utah or whatever, you haven't seen a specific school over the last couple of years. One, it's not about you. It's about the kids. So get the hell over yourself. Two, it has been since 2019 that coaches have even been able to visit schools. After the visit period ended in 2019, we had a global pandemic and everything was shut down. And up until this last evaluation period where coaches, not even an evaluation period, but a visit period where coaches were able to get on campus, nobody has seen college coaches. Nobody. I have heard, I have got wind of a couple of high school coaches that are turning up their noses at either requests for a visit or requests to come on to campus and visit with the with the specific college i've actually heard this from two different schools now oh my gosh and they're saying well we haven't seen you at our campus forever so why would we come see you and, and pay money to visit your program one high school coaches it's not about you it's about your players get the hell over yourselves and go do the things that will be the best for your players because if that's not your motive as a high school football coach, you're in the wrong industry. You're not getting rich. You're not getting famous. So if you're not doing it for the kids, what the hell are you coaching for? Let go of your glory days so that you could relive the football days and start coaching for the kids or let somebody else who will take your job because you're, you're being insane. And two, it's been a pandemic, man. Like Nobody's been able to get out and do visits. So everybody, high school football coaches with your, with your egos, just calm your tits and everybody just settle down and let's start anew as we come out of a global pandemic. And let's just be happy that we're no longer in this global pandemic. I guess we still are technically now, but it sort of feels like it's over, doesn't it? Even though it's still here, even though people are still getting sick, it sort of feels like we're just all done with it, so it's over. Yeah, we're so collectively decided to say screw it. Yeah. So that's my quick mini rant to end the show. High school coaches, get the hell over yourselves. The uh, You're going to have to tell me offline who these coaches were because now I'm curious. I, I want the gossip. Uh, but Jeff, it has been a great episode. Uh, so watch out if you haven't watched the bonus, make sure you listen to the bonus episode as well. So under Clegg, he's one of the, I mean, he's a four-star prospect, one of the top players in the state. And didn't he also, the last time you talked to him, he uh, brought up that he was, you know, one of the reasons he wanted to go to BYU so he could find someone to marry in the temple. If BYU misses, like, you know, there's times when it's, <laughs> like, you talk to the kid, they're just not that interested. They want to go out of state, you know, like it's nothing against BYU specifically. But Hunter Clegg is Peter Priesthood, who's a damn good football player. Whoa, whoa, and if whoa, whoa, we, if whoa, whoa, we whoa. miss, if we miss on Hunter Clegg, that will be that is no, I, I, no, we need clarity here. We need context. He said that the dating pool of BYU is incredibly intriguing, and he actually talks about it in the interview today. Um, that it's unique and it's appealing that he could go to a place where there are people who have the same belief systems, the same values that he does. I, it's kind of what you're saying, but he does it in a much more tactful way that it doesn't come off like, oh, this dude's got a missionary badge on right now. It, it comes across in a way that he's thoughtfully thinking about it and saying, I could go to the University of Texas A&M and I would be, you know, if, if I hook up with the one LDS girl who's there and it doesn't work out, then I kind of have to come back to Utah to date somebody who has those same kinds of values. But at BYU, I don't have to. So right. he's, he's, he's more thoughtful than, and I don't think he ever mentioned the temple itself. So I, I, I would be careful about throwing out that Peter priesthood label. I don't think that's it. I think he's, he knows what he, what, what's important to him. And he is thoughtfully sorting through how each school meets up to that. You see that that was that was tacked right there. Yeah, it, it is. And but still, I stand by my statement that oh. if if BYU misses on Hunter Clegg, 
That will, that is the biggest recruiting miss. Cause that will truly be a miss when a kid is going out of his way to just go talk to random professors about the school. That, that is a miss. That is, that is not a, Hey, you know what? I'm just not interested. I want to go out of state, you know, like whatever that is. If you screw this one up, that's on you. We have one last, or this is start thinking about this for the next week. Uh, it came in a little bit too late in the mailbag. We're not going to be able to talk about it, but this is something I want to do. Have you considered doing a life advice portion of the pod, a la the Russillo podcast? Because life advice uh, from BYU fans getting answered by Jeff feels like it would be interesting content. Yes. Believe uh, you me, folks. Yes. Nobody knows how to live your lives better than I do. And I am fully equipped and prepared to give advice on anything. And I don't want to knock off Russillo and just take his bit, but 100% I can give you advice that will enhance and edify your lives. Amen. And I we're going to do this. So maybe our next mailbag will be, you know, we'll be, our DMs are open. DM us all of your questions, concerns. Anonymous. We, we are here for the anonymous mailbag. My DMs are open, and it's mostly filled with huddle highlights. If you don't want to send it to the Give Em Hell Brigham, uh, what are we? What is, what is it? The Give Em Hell, Hell Pod? pod. If you don't want to send it to that, you want to send it to me or to Garrett, do it. I'm ready. I am ready to tell you how to live. Amen. And Jeff, give him hell. Give him hell.